Hey everyone, just a heads up before we begin, this episode references sexual abuse and suicide, and may be upsetting to some listeners. So how do you know Nick? I met Nick through the We Are Donor Conceived group. He was definitely one of the more vocal folks in the group. The We Are Donor Conceived Facebook group is where Amber got tips and tricks when she initially wanted to reach out to Kurt her biological father. With nearly 3,000 members, the group contains multitudes. Members who have known their whole lives they are donor-conceived and are cool with it, but maybe a bit curious. Other members of the group discovered the truth just yesterday, and some of them are angry. While Amber was processing the discovery that she was donor-conceived, she and Nick connected in the group. She was reeling, and he tried to comfort her, and shared his own experience. He is a really, you know, a really rough story. Like he, you know, I feel like all of these stories are worth telling, but his story is particularly egregious. Nick's story starts more than 20 years ago in a hotel in Springfield, Illinois. My sister was asleep upstairs in the hotel room, and me and my mom went downstairs to sit down and eat breakfast. Nick was on vacation with his little sister and his mom, Susan. He was 15 at the time. One morning during the trip, Nick's mother asked him to grab a bite to eat. There's a little uh, diner built into the hotel. They nestled into a booth and started to talk. We were just having a heart-to-heart and talking about the future and what sort of job and career I want to move into when I'm older. and. My answers weren't really what she was looking to hear. Nick said that he was thinking about becoming a pro wrestler or maybe a rapper in the style of one of his favorite bands, Insane Clown Posse. He didn't seem to care at all about academics. And and I'm thinking to myself, he's older and I see him going down a path I don't like for him. Nick was not living up to the vision Susan had for him. She says she didn't want him to wind up like his father, who she considered a bit aimless, someone who had never strived to reach his full potential. I felt like maybe it's because he's looking at his dad and seeing that he's not very successful in life and he doesn't have a lot of drive or ambition. And maybe he's thinking, well this is what I come from, and so this is how I'm going to be. She kept saying, you have more potential, you you can do anything you want, you have high intelligence. A lot of parents have conversations like this with their teenagers. It's like a rite of passage. But this wasn't your run-of-the-mill wake-up call. Susan was certain Nick was destined for greatness. So she decided it was time to share a secret with him. It was something that I agonized over. Anytime, like, a waiter or another customer or someone else would come too close, my mom would hush and just get quiet and wait for him because, obviously, this whole conversation was just too weird for a stranger to overhear. Susan told Nick that his dad wasn't his biological father and that he had been conceived through an anonymous donor from a genius sperm bank. 
you've got all this and you should take it and run with it and be more in life than where you're going right now. So I did tell him because I thought this is going to help him. I was just completely shell-shocked. One of the fundamental truths that I had known my entire life was shown to be a lie. It made me question everything. He wasn't as excited as I thought he would be about it. Excited? No. Curious? Hell yeah. What 15-year-old wouldn't want to know more about the genius blood running through their veins? I kept going to the computers that they had in the lobby at the hotel, and they would only let you get on the internet for about 10, 15 minutes. So the whole rest of the trip for the next two, three days, I was just constantly trying to go to the lobby and get on the computer just for a minute to learn what I could before it kicked me off. When he got home, he learned more about the genius sperm bank that he came from, called the Repository for Germinal Choice. He examined the bank's mission and history and realized... I'm the product of a selective breeding eugenic science experiment based on flawed principles and bad science. You're listening to Biohacked Family Secrets. I'm your host, TJ Raphael. On today's show, a look at a family built by Robert Graham's infamous repository for germinal choice and the dark side of this genius sperm bank. I've had such a bad experience, you can't separate the sperm donor from their traits. The screening process, which started out fairly rigorously, quickly went cockeyed and quickly was overwhelmed by shysters. Stay with us. Back in 1984, Susan and her husband had been trying to conceive for a few months, but they couldn't get pregnant. I talked to my husband. I said, we both need to see a doctor and see if there's something that we can correct. Susan's husband had a low sperm count, possibly because of a military injury, and they were unable to have children. He tried to do some surgery to correct that. That wasn't successful. Susan desperately wanted a baby to be a mother. So her doctor suggested a solution a sperm donor could help her and her husband have a child. She looked into a few local clinics, but... I remember calling them, and it was so expensive. My husband and I were just starting out. We really didn't have a lot of money. Susan's doctor provided her with another option. He said, by the way, there's this program that I think you would be really interested in with the repository in Dr. Graham, and he gave us some written material on it. I took it home, uh, looked it over. It sounded great. It was only $500 Mm -hmm. to participate Mm -hmm. in the program. So this was something that could get me my baby and an awesome, you know, I felt like an awesome start for that baby. So that's where the repository won, hands down. Susan wanted to work with the repository, But first, she had to be accepted. Remember, 
Graham's whole vision was about producing genius children, so donors were just half the equation. Fortunately for Susan, she was an attractive applicant. She was married to a man, and she was educated. I was just going back to college at that point. My goal is to get my bachelor's degree, and uh, it was computer information at that point. She got to work on the repository application right away. I remember thinking, this feels like a test to me. So I spent a lot of time going through the questions, drafting answers, you know, refining them. It It was very stressful for me. This is something that's unique about the repository, and not just for the 1980s. Today, anyone can buy sperm. Go to any of the major cryobank websites, put in your credit card info, and you can get genetic material to create a child. It takes about 15 minutes, and it's as easy as ordering from Amazon. But back in the 80s, Susan did have to share personal details about herself and her life in her application to the repository. She mailed off her materials and waited about four weeks for a response. I remember running home, checking the mail every day from work. Um, I think I called them once to make sure that they got my application. Susan was overjoyed when she found out she was approved. It was like the culmination of my dream because I just really wanted to have a baby. And this felt like the best way for it to happen. Once she was approved, she had a difficult choice to make. Who would be her child's donor? Their biological father? The repository sent Susan a catalog to peruse. This catalog, in fact, was actually just some Xeroxed papers with donor descriptions. Susan said in addition to IQ, the donor profiles had info on... What are they known for? Are they a Nobel Prize winner? Are they a gold medal winner? Um, Successful business person? In addition to intellectual and professional achievements, the catalog also had details on the donor's appearance. Their height, their eye color, their weight. And that was it. I feel like I would have a really difficult time narrowing things down. Like I have a difficult time ordering food, you yes. know, off of, <laughs> off of, you know, Grubhub or Seamless or Uber Eats. I can never pick anything. So picking a donor, I mean, for me, I, it would take me so long. So can you talk about that process of how you narrowed things down and what you were feeling at the time? It, I agonized over those pages. I spent days going back over them. Susan wanted the donor to look as much as possible like her husband. He was tall and blonde, but those physical characteristics, well, they were always secondary. I went for intelligence and success first. I was the driving force behind this. My husband didn't really care. He went along with it. So, you know, he, it wasn't, to me, it was life-changing. And to him, it was like, okay, she wants me to do this, so. After scrutinizing the catalog and going back and forth between candidates for days, Susan finally landed on one. He had a high IQ that, I can't remember, it was 140 or 180. 
He had the physical characteristics I needed. He was a successful lawyer. He sounded to me like, okay, he's got intelligence, he's got drive, he's got somewhere in life, he matches my husband's characteristics. I think he would be the best father for my child. Coming up? It's really tragic. I I wish that he was the type of person that he presented himself to be, but who he pretended to be is too good to be true. Nick dives into the past of his biological father and is disturbed by what he finds. Stay with us. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) And we agree on some things, but not on everything. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. When Robert Graham started the repository, he quickly realized he couldn't rely solely on Nobel Prize winners to fill his genius sperm bank. And he acknowledged this in interviews. We have either to recruit more donors or or lower our standards. And we're unwilling to lower the standards. So we're hard at work seeking out the most outstanding men who will be donors. Graham needed to cast a wider net. Because, let's be real, Nobel Prize winners weren't going to fill the coffers alone. But potential Nobel Prize winners could help. And where might one find these brilliant minds? Well, college campuses, for starters. (laughs) I take the tanks of liquid nitrogen in Dr. Graham's Cadillac and drive up to Caltech and talk to the students. And they say, you, you want to meet the genius of the whole school? He's, he's, that's his office. So I just go knock on his office door and uh, tell him this, this whole story. And he said, OK. That's Juliana McKillop speaking with CNN journalist Lisa Ling in 2014. Juliana worked with Graham for years. She helped him manage the bank and was among the aides who recruited sperm donors. And Graham employed other recruitment tactics. He wanted engineers, doctors, industrialists. So he targeted people who stood out in those fields, wrote letters to successful businessmen, scoured scientific conferences, and pulled out all the stops to woo a promising donor. Fancy dinners, expensive wine, 
and a bit of ego stroking. And sometimes he didn't have to recruit at all. Prospective donors would come to the repository to pass along their high IQ genes. Donor by donor, Graham built up his exclusive portfolio of genius sperm. Among the ones who made the cut, Nick's biological father. I was just so excited, and it was like my dream. When Susan became pregnant with the donor's sample, she was thrilled to become a mom. I wanted to get my arms around him. I wanted to have him and to love him. Despite her excitement, Susan chose to keep Nick's true origins hidden. We wanted everybody to feel that Nicholas was fathered by my husband. So we didn't (laughs) want to tell anybody. And we really weren't sure if we were going to tell him ever. And she didn't. That is, until that fateful breakfast in the hotel restaurant. It, it felt like my identity had been kept like a state secret from me. After the initial shock wore off, Nick started to come around to the idea that he had genius running through his veins. It's like, oh, oh, well, I come from good stock. I didn't know that. That's amazing. That's great. It feels like a compliment. And then over time, uh, objectively, your imagination just starts running wild because there's all this promise of what you've been told. Nick spent hours daydreaming about his biological father. I had built him up to be this mythic figure that I don't think any, anyone could ever possibly live up to that standard, but my imagination had ran wild. He wanted to know everything. His intelligence kicks in where he starts asking, I want to see all the paperwork you have. I want to know everything I can know. And then I'm like, oh my God, that was years ago. Stuff is in a box. Nick was a 15-year-old kid trying to figure himself out. He was very smart, but kind of a slacker, a little unmotivated. And suddenly, he felt destined for something greater. Of course he wanted to know more about his genius donor. And Nick says his relentlessness was driven by something else. My father, who I'd always had a contentious relationship with the whole time growing up, he had anger issues and anger management issues. And he wasn't very social. Nick wasn't close to his father. We had a very, a very tense relationship. As shocking as the news was, Nick wasn't disappointed when he learned he was donor-conceived. There was a small sense of relief because we were just so incompatible. He was mentally, mentally and physically abusive the whole time I was growing up. Nick says the abuse went on for years. So learning he was born from Graham's genius factory didn't just give Nick hope that he could become someone successful. It gave him the prospect of a different future, of a different father. And when Nick's mom showed him his biological father's donor profile for the first time, it was a revelation. He was a successful lawyer. He did have a a degree in mathematics. He had worked for NASA. He had written a book. He didn't know his donor's name or where he lived. But the paper confirmed one thing. His father was a somebody. Not long after finding out he was donor-conceived, Nick became a father at age 17. Yeah, the timing was 
very stressful having to deal with wondering, you know, am I going to be a good father? I haven't really had a good role model of a good father yet. And at the time when she became pregnant, I still didn't know who my biological father was. The pressure was on. Nick needed more than his donor profile. He wanted to find his dad, to know him. He had been in touch with David Plotz, who was writing about the repository for Slate magazine. David helped pinpoint who Nick's biological father was beyond his donor identifier. Nick got a name. My biological father is Ben. The stuff on the donor profile lined up. Ben did have college degrees in math and law, and he had worked as a programmer on the space shuttle program at MIT. Nick thought, this looks great. This guy is smart. Nick was amped to find Ben, but it took a while longer to connect with him in a real way. Remember, this was around the year 2000. There were no iPhones, and the internet was still mostly running on those AOL CDs. Finally, in 2003, when Nick was 18 years old, he traveled halfway across the country to meet his biological father in person. They met at a California hotel near Venice Beach, and Nick had this realization. Ben is much more like me in terms of personality. Me and him got along great the first time I met him. And, you know, just funny, laid back, not at all like my father. Nope, didn't seem like he had any kind of anger management issues. Nick saw himself in Ben. It was comforting. After that first meeting, Ben and Nick stayed in touch. But as time went on, a more detailed picture came into focus. And more information emerged from Ben and Ben's other biological children. I learned more about some of the mistakes that he'd made in life. And when the truth came out, the image of this brilliant, successful, genius father was shattered. Yeah, they asked him, what's your IQ? And he just made up a number. They should have questioned it when someone approached them saying, oh, you run a genius sperm bank. I, I would like to be a donor. I'm a genius. Yeah, my IQ is 160. And that was just the beginning. Stay with us. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. What if you could become stronger, more resilient, cure disease, and all you have to do is get naked in the cold and breathe? You get into ice water, and instead of, like, freaking out, you relax. It's called the Wim Hof Method, and Gwyneth Paltrow and Justin Bieber love it. 
I do the ice plunge because it's good for your body. But there's also a dark side. How many people have died doing the Wim Hof method? We can override even death. Listen on the podcast Infamous. That's Infamous, playing now. After they first connected in 2003, Nick stayed in touch with Ben and met some of his family members. You hear that someone is a lawyer and, and you think, oh, they must be successful. But then you learn more about him. Like the drip of water from a stubborn, broken pipe, more dark information started to trickle out about Ben. Does success look like someone who lives in low-income housing, who has over 18 children through six different failed marriages, has a string of abandoned families across the country? It's disappointing to find out that your biological father once solicited a minor, that he's been arrested for spousal rape. Ben is a registered sex offender, convicted of forcibly touching a minor. He was arrested for domestic violence for raping and assaulting his wife. After taking a plea deal, that charge was dropped to one count of false imprisonment. He's been disbarred, and has been in and out of court for failing to pay child support. It's really tragic. I, I wish that he was the type of person that he presented himself to be, but who he pretended to be is too good to be true. And there were other revelations. I spoke with Ben occasionally over the years, learned more about the family, and... It was surprising how many of the other children suffered from mental illness issues. And then the more I spoke with Ben, the more I realized he's not well. Nick says he was particularly unsettled by a conversation he had with Ben during one of their visits. He was talking about my brother, my brother Kevin, one of his naturally conceived children, who tragically committed suicide because of depression and mental health issues. And he told me, well, I don't think it's a suicide. I, I, I think he was murdered. And the FBI are looking into it. And, and built up this whole insane conspiracy just because he didn't want to accept the uncomfortable truth that he was a bad father. He'd abandoned him and he hadn't been there for him and he'd committed suicide. Nick thinks Ben suffers from mental health issues. I spoke to Ben and he said he's never been diagnosed with a psychiatric condition. But he did tell me that he believes his son's death wasn't actually a suicide and that he questions whether there were other forces at play. He also confirmed to me that he lied to the repository about his IQ, that he just made up a number. Amber told me Nick's story was particularly egregious, and she's right. It's so extreme that one can't help but wonder, how the hell was he able to donate sperm in the first place? Looking back, maybe we shouldn't be so surprised. Despite Graham's lofty ambitions, the repository didn't operate on the highest standards of excellence. Honestly, the way David Plotz describes it, it sounds like kind of a hot mess. 
you know, the bank was consisted of Graham, usually one or two assistants at any given time. Nobody was truly expert. They just kept stored the sperm either in Graham's backyard or later in a, an old bank building in Escondido. The record keeping was haphazard. They didn't keep great track of what sperm they were giving out. The thing was kind of a comedy of errors, except that it's not comic when you're giving sperm to women who have expectations about what they're getting. Plot says the entire screening process for the Genius Bank was erratic. I met a bunch of these guys, and, and some of them are really quite wonderful. Uh, but some of them aren't. <laughs> and and some of them are distinctly unwonderful. And that's because the screening process, which started out fairly rigorously, quickly went cockeyed and quickly was overwhelmed by shysters because there are people out there who are willing to say, oh, I'm a, I'm a genius, you should make me a donor. Uh, my IQ is 165, even though I've never had it tested. Nick believes his donor, Ben, was one of these people. He just wanted to believe I have good genes. There should be more of me. When he first approached the repository, Ben says that Graham did indeed wine and dine him, taking him to a fancy restaurant in a nice, expensive car. He told him about the repository's mission to remake the world with smart, gifted people. My dad took that to heart, and he went on to not only contribute to the repository for Germinal Choice, but to two other sperm banks as well. That's right. Ben confirmed to me that he donated to two other sperm banks multiple times. How is this all possible? In some ways, the sperm banking system was designed not to catch him. Beyond checking for STDs and HIV, the screening process for most sperm banks has operated on the honor system until fairly recently. Clinics are not legally required to verify educational records or backgrounds or medical histories with other doctor's offices or through family interviews. California Cryobank, one of the largest cryobanks in the world, didn't even start conducting comprehensive clinical psychological evaluations on donors until 2017. But even today, these types of screenings are not required by law. And it's impossible to tell how many sperm banks do them because there's no national regulatory system in place. Based on how many times he's donated, Nick believes that Ben has a lot of biological children out there. And that really concerns Nick because he sees some of Ben's traits in himself and has for a while. I'm probably going to have to start taking psych meds and get more professional help to be able to still meet my basic needs. When he was a teenager, Nick got into some trouble at school, and the administration required Nick to see a psychologist in order to return to classes. Nick says the doctor said he suffered from schizophrenia and delusions of grandeur. And Nick continued to have mental health challenges. I think he might have been 19 or 20. 
and he had done so much research onto his donor father and he found out about the schizophrenia. Then he tells me that he thinks he has it. And he tells me that he had a couple different episodes where he was thought he was talking to somebody and later realized that person wasn't there. Those are scary things for a mother to hear. Nick has been able to manage his mental health over the years through support from his family and the use of medical marijuana for his anxiety. He's still married to his high school sweetheart. They have two children. And Nick owns his own successful roofing company. But he thinks his mental health challenges are tied to Ben. I've had such a bad experience, and you can't separate the sperm donor from their traits. But it's complicated, and it kind of gets to the root of the problem with Graham's entire vision. Is it nature or nurture? Or nature and nurture? How much of Nick's intellect, his personality, his afflictions, were genetically predetermined. For starters, while certain mental illnesses can be hereditary, the jury is still out on how much can be passed down genetically. And Nick also says he grew up with an abusive father. Childhood trauma can definitely impact a person's mental health in profound ways. There's so much at play. Environment, genetics, economics, and human agency. Nick might have some anger knowing the truth about Ben, but how does his mom feel about the man she fathered a child with? Actually, she's surprisingly okay. This is stuff that has escalated with this donor throughout his life. I don't think that they went out there to try to scam people with this catalog of people that sounded so successful, but really they knew the dark side of these people. I mean, we all do things in our life, and I don't think they purposely hid it from me. Susan doesn't feel defrauded. She says the bank was operating during a different time. I got beautiful children, smart, intelligent, beautiful children. So I feel the repository succeeded in that way. My kids are the best thing in my life, so I am happy. Robert Clark Graham died in 1997 at the age of 90. He slipped getting out of a bathtub in a hotel in Seattle. He was in town attending the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. I wonder if he was there recruiting donors. The repository closed two years after Graham's death. Turns out, his own kids weren't into the whole thing and didn't want to carry on the family business. All in all, more than 200 children were born through Graham's genius sperm bank. He had no way of living long enough to even measure the results from his experiment and did not in any way set up someone to continue his work and measure the progress and then go back and make changes to his approach if that was needed. 
Each person born from the repository is an individual with a story. I wondered what David Plotz made of Graham's grand experiment. For the most part, these are these are children who've now grown up to be young adults who've, you know, some of them are quite successful in their field, some of them are not. Uh, some of them, you'd be glad to call them your friend and some of them you probably wouldn't. Um, I never talked to a mother who used the bank who was anything but happy that she had had a child that she might not otherwise have been able to have. And they're, goodness knows, it's it's wonderful that, that all these children are here and they are comfort to their families and, you know, are living these lovely lives. But as an experiment to create genius and an experiment to remake America and protect it from idiocracy, it, it was a failure. Whether or not the repository created a cadre of geniuses, it did leave a critical legacy behind. It changed the baby business by giving women and families choice, by empowering them to select, to shop, really, for a donor. In 1983, Dr. Charles Sims, a co-founder of California Cryobank, said in an interview that the repository, quote, changed the face of sperm banking forever. But even these changes have consequences. What California Cryobank did changed the entire trajectory of my life. They screwed up and gave life to somebody with a disease that they basically built in. That's next week on Biohacked Family Secrets. Biohacked Family Secrets is produced by 3 Uncanny 4 and Sony Music Entertainment. I'm your host, TJ Raphael. Our program is edited by Maureen McMurray. Our producers are Nick Mott, Jennifer Siegel, Shane McKeon, Krista Ripple, and Rahima Nasa. Jenny Kim is our production manager, and Alicia Baitoup composed the theme. Our fact checkers are Will Tavlin and Ava Ahmed Behi. This episode was mixed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. Special thanks to Laura Mayer, Nuna Sharafadeen, Amy Eason, Jennifer Womack, and Allison Sherry. Have a question or comment about this week's show? Send me a tweet at TJ Raphael or email us at biohacked at 3uncanny4.com. For 3uncanny4 and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm TJ Raphael. <laughs>